Hello, everyone, and welcome to Raw Talk Live COVID Decoded series. This year, we're making the most of the new normal and bringing you a virtual discussion series all about COVID-19 pandemic. Over eight weeks this summer, we live streamed our interviews with experts on COVID-19 and its impact on science and our society. The theme of the first installment in the COVID Decoded series is Coronaviruses 101. My name is Ignesh, and I had the chance to chat with Dr. Karen Mossman, a world-renowned virologist and vice president of research at McMaster University. We chatted about the basics of coronaviruses, the unique aspects of SARS-CoV-2, and how it behaves in the human body. Before we jump into the discussion, we wish to acknowledge the land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it's been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we're grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome, Dr. Mossman. It's very great to have you joining us today. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. It's, uh, I'm delighted to be talking to you today. That's great. Uh, we'll, we'll just jump right into it. So um, can you tell us how you got started with virology and what does being a molecular virologist entail? So that's a tale from many, many years ago when I did my undergraduate uh, degree at the University of Guelph. And I went to Guelph because I wanted to be a vet. It was the only, it was my plan A, and I only had plan A, and I was fortunate enough when I was at Guelph to be able to volunteer as a first-year student in uh, the large animal vet clinic, and I hated it. Um, It wasn't what I thought, and I realized very quickly that that was not the profession I wanted to go into, um, and I did not have a plan B. Meanwhile, I was in a program, Molecular Biology and Genetics, and one of my, I think it was either third or fourth year uh, research projects or thesis projects was in a virology lab. And so I loved the research and I loved working with viruses. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, it is. Uh, So what does being a molecular virologist entail? Like what's what's your day-to-day look like? Or I guess not uh, as a PI, but when you are a molecular virologist? So we're really interested in um, in understanding how viruses work. And when we say molecular virologist, it's really at the, the molecular level. So, you know, how are how do viruses interact with their, their host cells? Um, and I'm really interested in virus-host interactions. And so how, how do cells recognize viruses? How do they respond to viruses? And then, of course, how do the viruses counter-respond um, to allow them to continue to replicate, propagate? Um, and it's this back and forth, um, you know, it's the response, counter-response, counter-counter-response, and it's that evolution between a virus and its host, which really has helped form the immune system um, and, and also, you know, the, the breadth and extent of viruses. So it, it's that that I'm the most interested in. Right. And, and as you said, there are uh, so many viruses and millions that we probably even haven't sequenced or discovered yet. Um, so can you explain the difference between uh, what a coronavirus is and some of the other common viruses that we do encounter? So there's, as you mentioned, a huge diversity of viruses, not just in their structure, 
Um, so there's diversity in their structure as to what the source of their genetic material. Is it RNA? Is it DNA? Is it single-stranded? Is it double-stranded? Um, also the diversity in size, complexity. You know, some viruses code for as few as five or six proteins. Some viruses code for hundreds of proteins. Um, there's diversity in the simplicity of their structure. Some are just the genetic material and a protein coat. Some have, um, you know, they, they bring in proteins and nucleic acids from their host. They have a protein coat potentially and an envelope. So there's just huge diversity in, in structure, but also huge diversity in the types of uh, mammals or insects or reptiles that they infect. Uh, so how is the coronavirus different? Um, specifically, how is uh, SARS-CoV-2 different from, uh, well, how, what makes it novel? So there are, the coronavirus family, again, is diverse. There's coronaviruses that infect many different types of species. Um, there are four human coronaviruses that most people have been infected with. It's estimated up to, um, you know, 30% of the common cold, um, yearly common cold, is, are due to, you know, one of these four human coronaviruses. So what makes SARS-CoV-2 um, and the original SARS coronavirus, um, you know, probably more interesting is that they didn't originate in, in humans. So, you know, they, they were able to jump species into humans. So, of course, as, as soon as you disrupt that virus host evolution, you see much more devastating effects. Whereas, you know, many people will be infected with a, a human coronavirus that has been evolving with humans for many, many years, and it causes mild to no symptoms and common cold. And that's just because uh, these have evolved with humans and uh, because of this evolution, they've sort of come to a balance between the infectivity and the lethality. And that's not the case for these uh, viruses that jump species. Is that, uh, is that, did I get that right? That's absolutely correct. So, you know, when a, when a common virus has evolved in a human, not only does the human recognize the virus and know how to respond to that particular virus, the virus also knows how to respond you know, to the, the immune response of, of that particular host. So when all of a sudden now you have, you know, a virus that has jumped species, uh, the, the virus knows how to, to replicate because it has replicated in other species. But if the human immune system has never seen that virus, it hasn't generated um, the specific responses against that particular virus. Right. Uh, so what makes... Uh a virus more likely or less likely to jump species? So some of it is all about real estate, location, location, location. Um, does, does a particular virus that might be, you know, found within a particular species, has it ever had the opportunity to, you know, to even experience and potential to interact with, with a human or um, human cells? And then does it have the right... Um, mechanisms, proteins to even get into human cells. Um, when you think about a, you know, a virus infection, we talk about two different things, susceptibility and permissivity. Susceptibility is can it even bind and get into a cell type of a different species? 
And then once it gets in, is it able to, you know, to replicate and is that environment um, a suitable host? Does it, does it have the right um, things that the virus needs within that particular host for it to replicate? And is it, so that's when we talk about permissivity. So there's lots of viruses that we might be exposed to, but it can't get into our cells or our cells won't support what they need. So we might be exposed to them, but they have no effect. Yeah, uh, most of the viruses by mass on Earth are probably bacteriophages, right? And they, they affect humans uh, not at all. Or you get into, um, you know, the ocean and seawater, and it's estimated that per one milliliter of seawater, there can be 10 to the 8 to 10 to the 10 virus particles. Wow. When you swim in the ocean, you're exposed to those all the time, but they're a very different type of virus and they don't get into or have access to, you know, human cells. So it, it doesn't cause a problem. Uh, so you recently awarded a CIHR grant to study the novel SARS virus. Uh, and actually, Arinjay Banerjee, a postdoc in your lab, was uh, part of one of the first uh, Canadian groups to successfully isolate SARS-CoV-2. Uh, what's the importance of being able to isolate and uh, grow the virus in the lab? So if you really want to understand the virus, you need to be able to work with the virus. Um, you know, we can learn some of the, some about the virus just by looking at clinical symptoms. But if you really want to know, you know, how does the virus work? What cell types can it get into? How does it, how do, you know, human cells recognize the virus? What's the response of the human cells? you really have to be able to study that and ask that question. So you need the virus to be able to really um, to study it, to interrogate it. Um, and then if you want to look for certain therapies, you know, if you want to test new drugs, you, you need to be able to, to have a, a model system where you have the virus so you can directly test the efficacy of a drug to test the efficacy of a vaccine in an animal model. Um, so it, it's really important to be able to have the virus to work with, to study, and to be able to, you know, one of the first things, um, you know, we did in, in the, the larger group that isolated the virus was to make sure that colleagues across the country who have the right facilities also have access to the virus because one group alone can't solve all the problems. Yeah. It has to be a collective effort because there's too many questions to answer. Right. There's, uh, we're still learning more about, and I suspect we'll be learning more about it for years to come. Um, so what are the aims of your grant, uh, and uh, what are the potential impacts of developing these uh, infection models? I know you mentioned vaccine development. Yeah, so again, you know, we're really interested um, at the level of really understanding the virus and the, you know, the, the molecular virology yes. aspects and, and how it interacts with, with its host. So we do... And we've already done, Aaron Jay's already, um, you know, answered a number of the questions. You know, we were really interested in, for example, what type of host cells or human cells can this virus even get into and replicate in? Um, obviously, lung cells, because we, it's, a, it's a respiratory tract infection. But, you know, clinically, they've also seen gastrointestinal um, sequela and other, um, you know, clinical signs. So it becomes really important to understand, you know, what are the different cell types, human cell types that the virus can either enter into, replicate in, and spread from. 
And then how do those cells respond? Do they have a pro-inflammatory um, response? Because that, again, contributes to symptoms that we see clinically. Can the virus get into immune cells? Because as we know from HIV, viruses that can get into and potentially kill immune cells, that has huge implications for the immune response in the immune system. So we're really interested in, you know, not just what cell types, but how do those cells respond? How does the virus counter respond? And, you know, from that, you know, we can, we can help um, come up with some good model systems. So is there a good lung model system? Is there a good gut model system? So then, and if we can, you know, get the model systems working, then we can work with colleagues who are very good at drug development. So drug development is not our expertise, but we have colleagues that are fantastic at drug development. But they need to be able to test their drugs or their combination of drugs in a model system. So that's where the collaboration um, ensues. So uh, what model system does your lab actually employ? I, I know uh, Arinje is a specialist in uh, bat uh, and uh, understanding viruses in bats. Uh, what, what kind of uh, model system do you work with in the lab? So we've been working with um, a lung system, um, lung cells. We're just starting to, uh, we have a new postdoctoral fellow in the lab that has expertise in, in gut and making organoids, so 3D um, right. culture systems. So again, that better recapitulates, you know, what happens, these 3D organoid systems better recapitulate what happens in, a, in an organ um, in an individual. So we're setting up a number, even with human cells, of organoid um, systems. And, and we are interested in, in that for, you know, for, for a different reason. But uh, we, it's thought that this virus evolved initially from bats. And we know that bats can harbor a whole variety of viruses, and they don't get sick. Right. But yet, they're very similar to us with their immune system. So we want to understand what are those subtle differences, and and basically, what do bats know that we don't know, and and how? And once we understand what those small changes are, how can we then use our modern technologies to to really recreate the outcomes of those changes, so that Right. You know, we can use the same tricks that bats use um, as novel therapeutics. Right, with uh, gene engineering or uh, novel drug discovery targeting specific immune types, uh, uh, those sort of approaches. And uh, going back to modeling with organoids, and that's better than model layers because uh, we have or complexity of uh, structures or uh, what about it makes it better? It, part of it is the complexity. Um, you know, when when you have a single monolayer of cells in a tissue culture dish, that's you know the that's providing the easiest possible um, advantage to the to the virus because you're you know that's not how our bodies work. We know, for example, even in um, you know for respiratory viruses. You know, there are mucus layers. So the virus has to get through a thick mucus layer. And then it has to get through, um, you know, multiple cell layers to potentially get into the type of, of cells that it might replicate in. You know, we know, for example, in lung, for sure, that the top layers are, are often being sloughed off. So, you know, there, there are multiple with our intrinsic immune system, for example, mucus and, and all of this structurally, there's many, many more barriers 
Whereas in, if you provide a nice monolayer, right. single monolayer of cells, no mucus layer, yeah, it makes it really easy for the virus, yeah. right? The virus is going to win because we're, we're, we're giving it all of the advantages. So, you know, the more we can make it look like um, what would happen potentially um, within a human or within an in vivo model without having to work with an in vivo model, um, you, you know, the more it, it makes it more challenging for us, but it, it, we can understand um, better than how, how does the virus get around some of these challenges. That's uh, very interesting. Uh, so going off of what you're talking about, bats, um, just leads me to think about some of the other pets we, most people seem to have uh, some sort of contact with animals, pets or otherwise. Uh, can, they, can they be affected, one, and two? Can they be used, uh, can they be a source of uh, transmission, like as a vector? So it was really interesting. It must be now, you know, two or three months ago when the first report, I think it was a tiger in one of the, the zoos, um, had, had some symptoms and they found that it was COVID positive. Um, so, you know, there have been sporadic um, instances where animals have been found to be positive. Um, we certainly don't see the same sort of level of infection and spread, um, you know, that, you know, in, in, in household pets, you know, dogs, cats that, you know, we've, we've certainly seen um, in humans. Now, part of that could be, I don't know if we're testing. Mm. I mean, you don't, That's true. you know, the more you look, the more you find, right? Um, but there's certainly anecdotal evidence or evidence um, and reports of, of animals being um, positive. Now, how efficient that is, how efficiently they spread, um, a lot's not known. And, and it might be because we just haven't looked enough. Okay, that makes sense. Right now, I guess the, the priority is definitely trying to figure out public health consequences of uh, the whole pandemic. So um, I guess we can talk more about how it affects humans now. So what do we know about what happens to the body once it's infected with the, the novel coronavirus? And, you know, you've probably seen in the paper and heard there's, there's a variety of different symptoms. So it's, it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all. Um, and that's because not everybody's immune system is identical. Um, and there's, you know, there's many things to consider, you know, why some might have an asymptomatic infection, you know, why others get extremely um, ill and sick. Um, you know, part of it is initially how much virus were you actually exposed to? Um, I mean, that's a huge component for any viral infection, not just SARS-CoV-2, but really for any viral infection. Um, you know, how much initial virus were you exposed to? Um, you know, if you passed someone who, you know, sneezed and, and you walked past them a couple minutes later, you might have only been exposed to a very, very small number of virus particles you know, the chance is that is not enough to initiate an infection. Um, because again, you have all of these intrinsic, you know, mucus layers, all these other all the physical barriers that exist, all the physical barriers. Um, you know, if you are, though, um, in exposed to very high numbers um, of virus particles, just because of the nature of how you became infected, you know, the, and the virus takes hold, because you know, your body, this is a new virus to humans, and, and you haven't, if you've never been exposed to this virus before, um, you know, in many cases for young, healthy adults, um, children that have an active immune system and a robust immune system, 
your innate immune system is there to to deal with new pathogens that come in. That's what your innate immune system is for. And so, you know, some people don't have any symptoms. Some might feel like they have a, a typical, you know, in, and, and this is the problem with every year when someone has a cold. It could be any one of a number of viruses right. because the response is the same. And so, you know, you make some interferon, you make some cytokines, you feel lethargic, you might get a bit of a fever, you might have a bit of a cough and a sore throat. That's a normal response to a virus infection. Right. And that's, that's just the body responding to that. And uh, the symptoms are a factor of the body's response. Absolutely. And, you know, all viruses, you'll get a slightly different response, but a general response is, you know, making of interferon, which is a cytokine, making some pro-inflammatory cytokines, and collectively, very similar types of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if you are, if you have a pre-existing condition so that your immune system is not working at, at full 100% capacity, often in the elderly, just over time, the, 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 you know, the strength of the immune system or the efficacy of the immune system wanes with age. That's where we're, and not surprisingly, where we're seeing, um, you know, the hardest hit in the elderly population. Um, Not only are their immune systems less robust, but by that point, there's often other, you know, pre-existing health conditions as well. And, And so that's unfortunately where you know, we've seen the highest level of, um, of infections and severe um, clinical symptoms. What's happening mechanistically in the body? Like how does SARS, uh, the novel virus, get into our cells and infect us, the pathogenicity of it? So we know, um, we don't know everything about the, the mechanics behind it. We certainly know that one of the receptors is called ACE2. Right. You've probably heard of, it's the same same receptor that the original SARS also used, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it's not surprising because the two viruses are, I think, at the protein level about 95% similar. Wow. So we, we're not surprised that SARS-2 uses the same um, receptor as the original SARS. But that it, it can't be as simple as that because, you know, the, the symptoms and the ability to transmit are very different between the original SARS and, and this SARS. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the original SARS was more of a lower respiratory tract infection, not an upper. Um, the original SARS didn't transmit um, as efficiently, um, but it did have a higher mortality rate. So in the original SARS, the overall mortality rate, I think globally, was around 10%. In Canada, it was 17%. I mean, fortunately, this virus does not have a mortality rate of 10 to 17%, That or that would be devastating. But this virus transmits much, much easier. And we don't... We don't understand all of the differences, but there are some things we do know about ACE2. Um, you know, we do know about another cellular protease that's involved also in how the virus gets in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're starting to understand what cell types it replicates in and what some of the host responses are. Um, we don't see as robust of an interferon response, for example, as we see um with some other viruses. So we are starting to understand those subtle differences, which is now starting to 
allow us to understand, oh, that's why we see that clinically, or, oh, that's mm-hmm. how, why it might be different from the original SARS. Wow. Yeah, I mean, 5% uh, difference, and we see so much difference phenotypically about how it presents in uh, patients. It's uh, it's incredible, uh, and understanding it, like you said, is still an ongoing process. So uh, do we know about what the, ch- like any particular changes that we've already identified between the uh, original SARS virus and novel uh, SARS virus uh, that contribute to some of these different effects? I think one of the biggest ones, one, one of the biggest um, differences is where not, and not just ACE2, and, and we know ACE2 is one of the receptors, but it's not as simple as that. We know there have to be other receptors as well. But the original SARS really was a lower respiratory tract infection. Um, Whereas when you have predominantly an upper and nasal sort of um, infection, that's partially what really lends itself to that transmission. Um, Because any cough, any sneeze, runny nose, um, saliva, I mean, when you have a really upper respiratory tract and, and nasal type of infection, transmission is is much more robust than if it's a really deep, lower um, respiratory tract infection. And another subtle difference with this virus is, and again, it could be due to those, you know, it's 5% changes, but 5% is still, you know, quite a bit at the protein level. Um, You know, the ability to have the infections that are the um, asymptomatic infections. There were very few asymptomatic infections that we understood with the original SARS. If you really develop that lower respiratory tract infection, you know, and almost everyone that had symptoms was positive. Right. You know, now we know there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers, um, and that enables spread. Um, and and I think that's really why um, you know we're seeing we're seeing such robust spread. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know you have it, it it's hard. It's easier right. to, to quarantine and to protect yourself if you know you're infected. That's if true. you don't know you're infected, it's so much easier to spread a virus. Yeah, even if uh, it might not affect you down the line, you're still acting as a vector to transmit to maybe multiple people down the line. Um, so as you mentioned, the coronavirus research is still ongoing and lots of groups internationally are collaborating uh, with this. Um, and I've seen your lab publish a lot of preprints about uh, COVID. What do you think is the role of uh, this international collaboration and uh, how the scientific community has been using preprints to uh, inform the public? And what, some of the downsides and the positives of that. Well, it's not just using preprints to inform the public. It's also to inform your colleagues. So some disciplines have used the concept of either preprints or, you know, that concept of, of putting your work out into, if not a public forum, certainly the research community before an absolute publication. So there are, there are some disciplines that have been doing this for years. You know, historically, you know, you know in the medical field, you know, biosciences, you know, that has not been common. It's, you know, it's been very much get the paper published. And then once it's published, people can read about it. I mean, some people, even at conferences, at some large conferences, sort of in the biomedical field, will will really only present research that's either been published or very close to publishing, because they're they're worried about getting skewed. And that's just, you know, the nature of some of some fields. 
you know, what's been really, I think it's been really gratifying um, is, you know, for one, you know, this is now a pandemic that has affected everybody. I mean, even if you think about, you know, other pandemics in our lifetime, there have been some regions that have been very hard hit. Other regions, Ebola, Mm -hmm. you know, Africa has been very hard hit with Ebola. North America, Europe, no. That has to do more with the environmental conditions of... uh, There's a lot of different, yeah, absolutely. A lot of different conditions, how the virus spreads, where the virus comes from. Uh, This virus... We're, we're all in this. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, we're all we're all in this. So that's almost given a, a camaraderie within the scientific community. And, you know, most people just want to get their their work out there. And so preprints now have become, I think, standard. And that's good. I mean, it's good and bad. So yeah. it, it's good you because all of the that. out there. But you have to be, it's, it's like anything that you find on Google, just because it's in a preprint, it has not yet been peer reviewed. Um, not to say that once it's peer reviewed, it's absolutely correct in the truth, because, you know, they're, they're, you know, we're humans yeah. and peer reviewed three or four people have, have reviewed it. Now, usually they're experts in the field, but, you know, we're not perfect, we're human. So, you know, you do have to, um, you know, evaluate what you read in a preprint, maybe a bit more so. Again, you know, you sort of get to know within any particular field, um, you know, who are, you know, who have very strong scientific records, um, you know, publication records is, you know, are the methodologies that were used the right methodologies? There, there are ways that you can definitely evaluate. You do have to be careful. But I, I'm hoping that even after this whole pandemic um, subsides, that that willingness to collaborate, to not worry about getting scooped, to, you know, make sure that the information is out for others to use, the sharing of resources, it's not just the preprints. Everybody is willing to share information, share resources, um, because we're all in this. We all want a vaccine. And, and honestly, I mean, if we're involved in, in helping the first vaccine or the first antiviral come out or not, I just want someone to do it yeah. because that's going to make my life easier. So even if it's a completely different group that, and we've had no, um, you know, we haven't helped at all, it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah. so I, I think there has been that collective, which has been amazing. Um, so, uh, working with this very dangerous virus, I know everyone around the world is working on it. Uh, what kind of precautions do you need to take for working with some something that's so dangerous and potential for a pandemic? So, if you're studying the virus the way we are growing it up, um, you know, looking at it with high titers, you you have to do that in a containment level three facility. Um, so, you know, there is one in, in Toronto, that's where the, you know, Aaron J worked with colleagues in Toronto at their containment level three, because that's where the patient samples were. Can you explain what containment level three means? So a containment level three, um, laboratory. So there's four, there's four different, what we call biosafety level or containment level laboratories. Um, you know, a lot of viruses that we work with normally are what we call level two or biosafety or containment level two. 
We still work within a biological safety cabinet. So the, the virus or the pathogen or the bacteria or the cell line are still within um, a cabinet. So it's protected from getting contaminated and the worker is protected from also being contaminated. Once you're in a containment level three facility, um, you wear much, much more PPE. So in, instead of just working within a biosafety cabinet, for example, the, the level of personal protective equipment is, is uh, much more robust. Um, all of the protocols are, are more robust. Um, there's just more checks and balances in place. Um, so that, you know, like the, the actual facility has to have negative pressure. So it's not just that you're protected because of the biosafety um, cabinet that you're working in. You're protected by the entire facility and the setup of the facility and the filtration of the air. So it's just that. And then, you know, the highest level, which if you're working on Ebola and, and some of these other viruses, now you're in, you've probably seen, you know, some of the, the movies, like almost like the space suit. Right. right. So there's the protection lock. you go in, you know, so it's just increased levels of, of protection. And uh, that that's what's stopping uh, the spread from labs outside to the general public. Absolutely. Um, so it feels like we're learning more and more about the virus at such a rapid pace. Uh, and we mentioned the role of preprints and how that works. Um, and it can be hard to keep up with the latest information. Um, and I think that poses a challenge for scientific communication. Like uh, this is something that we've been trying to entangle with uh, as science communicators, as graduate students. Um, th there's been just so much confusion about uh, in the general public about the origins, conspiracy theories. Uh, what are some of the misconceptions that you've uh, uh, heard of about the novel coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've heard a lot. Um, I think the data are pretty solid that, you know, it originated from a bat coronavirus. Um, I, I, it was, it was not, I don't think it was a man-made, yeah. um, you know, generated virus. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, it, you know, now what we don't know is that, you know, in the, you know, wet markets in China, um, you know, did it go directly from bats into humans? Um, that's unlikely. I mean, the, the, the human coronavirus and the bat coronavirus are, I think, 96% identical, which sounds like a lot. Yeah. But we just learned about the 5% difference between the old SARS virus and the new one. Well, and, and, you know, that's about the same level of, of um, similarity between, you know, eight gorillas and humans, yeah. right? So, I mean, so it, it's 5% is a lot. Um, so there's, and, and this is where, you know, the folks that do evolutionary biology and, you know, that becomes a fascinating area because, and, you know, they're, they're starting to look into, you know, pangolins were, were thought to be maybe an intermediate host. Um, certainly with the original SARS, it was thought to go from that specific cat and then into humans. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of that information has been, you know, you can never say with 100 percent certainty, but, you know, the data are, um, you know, are, are really heading that way. I mean, I've certainly heard 
um, you know, originally because it was affecting lung function that, you know, if you held your breath for a certain length of time, you know, you could get rid of the, you know, there, I mean, we've heard so many different, um, you know, that it, it just, um, cell phone towers. I mean, in some areas oh, yeah. of the world, they think cell phone towers. So they've burned and destroyed cell phone towers because there's a, a correlation between an area that has cell phone towers and a virus outbreak. So therefore it's coming, you know, that's, that's correlation that that's not causation. Um, So yeah, we've heard lots of different interesting theories. It must be frustrating as someone working on COVID to hear some of these uh, conspiracy theories, but as our understanding of this virus and the disease uh, quickly evolves, how can we as scientists better communicate the finding to the public and make sure some of these misconceptions are either uh, resolved or don't arise in the first place? Well, I think things like what you're doing right now is really important. Um, You know, being able to have conversations, you know, between, you know, scientists and and the public, um, you you know, being as open and honest that we don't, we don't have all the answers. but, you know, here are the answers, you know, or here's the information that we have. Here's how we interpret that. Again, the more, you know, we're collaborative and, and the more you open up um, your data to, you know, collaborators around the world, they can also evaluate that data. Um, but but it is important. It is important with the public to be um, as open and as honest Um you know, sometimes we data are what data are. People will hope for certain results, but the data are what data are. And sometimes we don't like what the data are suggesting. Um, Sometimes, you know, we make a hypothesis and we're wrong, but that's the whole point of a hypothesis, right? Right. You, You either prove it right or wrong. No one likes to be wrong. So I think, you know, as long as you're doing science for the right reason and you have an open mind and you're open to all of the different interpretations of what your data might mean, and and then you do have to have a way of um, being able to disseminate that to the public, that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has to make sense to them, right? Um, And then hopefully, you know, everyone is, you know, has, has their own opinion, but hopefully they are doing enough reading and, 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 you know, informing themselves enough. Um, but, but we're also human. We're, you know, or I've even found over the 20 years of doing research that what we published wasn't necessarily wrong, but at the time we didn't have enough information or the right tools that we weren't able to, now we have a different interpretation of what we saw Mm. 20 years ago, because now we have more pieces of the puzzle or we have more sophisticated, um, you know, methods to look at a question. And so now it's not that our, our you know, we, we did the experiment the wrong way or our, our data were wrong. We just interpreted the data the best that we could with the tools and knowledge we had. And now that we have more data, more tools, we realize, oh, well, this is a different way to interpret. And that now actually makes more sense. So it's, it's an evolving... Right. It's a very iterative process and you build on top of uh, previous research. Uh, I think the, the point that gets lost, I feel like, in, when we're communicating to general public is that we can be wrong, but the pursuit of science in trying to find new knowledge will eventually self-correct. 
Absolutely. And, and the more people that work on it and look at it from all different um, areas, again, it, it, you're developing that picture. You know, every one scientist is one small piece of the puzzle. But the more people that do that, then all of a sudden the puzzle starts making sense. And even maybe if it's not filled in, you get a really good understanding of what, what is the final product going to mm. look like. So I'm um, actually mindful of your time. This conversation has been very interesting. We've just flown past 45 minutes. Um, so we're going to sort of go into the audience questions shortly. Uh, so if any of the viewers watching, please start sending in your questions. Uh, we already have some lined up. So uh, we'll, we'll go and ask uh, some of those. Uh, let's see here. So one of the questions here is, uh, I think we tackled it, but maybe you can uh, just briefly uh, just uh, expand on it. What exactly is happening when someone has the virus but isn't showing symptoms? Uh, and how does it affect how, you, how likely you are to pass it on? So if you have what we call an asymptomatic infection, it's likely that, you know, you do have, you have some virus, it's, it's replicating, it's shedding, but it's, it's not either replicating to the extent that it could or in the number of cells that it could that, you know, your the, the immune response is, um, isn't triggered to an, a, an extent where you're actually feeling the outcome. So you might be making, you might be having a response, mm -hmm. but not to the extent where, oh, I have enough cytokines in my circulation that I'm feeling lethargic or I have a fever or, you know, so, so you can have, you know, either very, very mild symptoms or, you know, the symptoms just aren't sufficient enough that you recognize them, but you still at a low level could be shedding some virus. Right. And that's to do with the tropism of the virus and tropism, uh, sorry, is uh, the uh, areas of the body or the cells that are more affected by the virus or the virus can get easily into those cells. Or it's only a couple number of cells. It's a small number of cells, small number of virus particles that are being replicated. It's kind of like just flying under the radar right so it's there but it's flying under the radar right but, but it's you still can there. still spread it yes exactly but but you can still spread it exactly okay i think that covers uh the main part of the question uh another question we have here i think it's uh, pretty interesting uh do we know about the mutational frequency uh of the genes in the novel coronavirus and, and mutational frequency here would be uh the uh, rate at which the virus uh, has mutations in its uh, genome? All viruses, when they replicate, um, mutate. I mean, even when, even when our DNA replicates, right. there's a certain mutational rate, right? Which is why we get cancer and other um, diseases. And in, so this is an RNA virus. In general, RNA viruses tend to mutate, have a higher mutation rate than DNA viruses. Um, but we don't, and we have been, they have been seeing mutations in this virus. And, and so one thing that's been happening around the world is a lot of sequencing so that they can start tracking, um, you know, the genomics and the sequences of the virus, not just to see how it's, you know, changing over time, but also within a certain geographical location. I see. Um, you know, there, there have been some mutations um, that they have, so, for example, one mutation that they have found um, around the globe, so in multiple geographical locations, 
is a mutation in the RNA polymerase. Um, and it's a very specific mutation. And they have found that this alters the RNA polymerase um, and actually helps increase the mutation rate a small bit. And so, again, if you have a mutation in a polymerase, the virus might be able to replicate a little bit better. If you have a mutation rate, um, for example, in the spike protein, that could affect how it binds to ACE2 or potentially other receptors that it could bind to um, and, and therefore affect. I mean, we have, but we haven't seen um, a, a really high mutation rate in part because coronaviruses also encode proofreading enzymes. Okay. So, you know, some viruses only have, um, you know, a, a polymerase and RNA dependent RNA polymerases tend to have a higher error um, mutational rate than, say, DNA polymerases. But this coronaviruses also express more proteins and have more genes than some other small RNA viruses. And one of them um, has a proofreading function. So we do see some, you know, mutations, but certainly not on the same order as other viruses. Like HIV is a classic example. Yep extremely high mutation rate. Even within one individual, the virus is mutating and changing. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, trying to find a vaccine has been really challenging mm. for HIV because it mutates so quickly. Right. And uh, that mutation can just help it uh, overcome some of the uh, factors that identify in our body through the immune system. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, since we, we've had air travel mostly suspended for the general public for over about three months now, uh, do we know if there are already different strains on different continents because uh, the world is more isolated than it was when the pandemic started? Well, they, they are starting to see, um, you know, certain, certain strains or, or clades, um, you know, in different geographical uh, regions. Now that could in, in part be, as you said, because it's, there's not this sort of one homogeneous, you know, population because of all the, the travel. But we also know, um, you know, again, from other viruses that, you know, certain, um, you know, there's also the genetics of the host. So, you know, we've seen with other, you know, populations where certain, um, you know, populations are more or less susceptible to different types of viruses. And again, it, it comes down to that virus host evolution. And depending on, you know, particular, you know, genetics within a particular population, right. you know, why we see, you know, different susceptibilities and, and, um, and outcomes in, you know, between, you know, we see differences between men and women, you know, we often see differences between different, um, you know, ethnic backgrounds, so there, there's so many different factors that that allow that to happen. It's 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 not just one factor, but there there definitely are, you know, different um, different strains or different clades that are more prominent in in some areas than others. Um, I'm actually glad you brought up the ethnic uh, differences. So in some of the countries that do have a diverse population, we've we've seen differences in outcomes for patients of uh, different ethnicities. Do we know? if that's related to uh, genetic factors, or is that something else? You know, that's where it becomes, I don't think we know enough yet if it's strictly genetic, 
Um, but there's, there's so many different things. And this is, this is why for not just a viral infection, but a lot of different diseases, you know, you always try to understand what are the underlying factors. In some cases, it's genetic. In some cases, it's environmental. You know, in some cases, you know, there, there's all diet. Um, you know, there's so many different, um, and it's, it's, it's usually multifactorial. So it's, it's, it's rare that you can look at you know, an infection or a disease and say it's due to one factor. Mm. It's usually due to a multiplicity of factors. Um, that, that makes sense. Uh, the, I, I don't think there is enough data out there to make a conclusive statement about that. But it is something that is very uh, odd. I, I haven't seen this before for uh, some of the other viruses that we've encountered. Um, uh, let me just look at some of the questions that we've got coming in. Um, I see one of these questions. I, again, I think we've sort of tackled it, but if you could briefly expand on it. Uh, how do we know that this coronavirus came from bats or uh, another particular species? So the reason, so for one, bats, again, bats are really interesting. Um, they harbor, you know, many, many, many different types of viruses and virus families. And it there are actually papers from, I think, even before the original SARS coronavirus um, broke in 2003, that where they had started sequencing um, and identified, um, you know, different viruses and different bat species. Um, you know, there are some papers even before the original um, SARS outbreak that had found coronaviruses in bats that, you know, had very high, like in the 90 percent. Um, similarity to some of the human coronaviruses. And so, and, and, and this, you know, certainly happened not just with um, SARS, but some of the other Ebola virus, Marburg virus, again, sequences found in, um, in, in bats that have, and, and this is historic. So, you know, there's even a Egyptian tomb bat. So again, from thousands of years and, they, they, they were able to get enough to sequence um, some viral sequence from an Egyptian tomb bat. And in one of the proteins, I think it was the polymerase, you know, that fragment, and it was only a fragment, but that fragment that they sequenced um, was 100% identical wow. to, you know, so, so again, you know, we know bats have, har have harbored, um, you know, coronaviruses and, and for, and, and bats have been, um, you know, for, for millions and millions of years, um, you know, they're one of the most diverse um, mammalian species known. Mm. So they have probably harbored these viruses for longer than Homo sapiens have even been, um, you know, on the planet. So, oh. again, good evidence that that's the origin of where these viruses came from. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Um, and you mentioned bats have been harboring these uh, viruses for a long time. Uh, what about the bat immune system makes it possible to sort of be a reservoir for these viruses, but then not show any uh, pathogenicity or symptoms because of it? So again, part of it, I think, is because, you know, bats are so, you know, as a, as a species or the, you know, the order, um, I think there's something like 1,400 different species of bats. Um, you know, they've been interacting with viruses for millions and millions and millions of years. So, A, they've, they've learned how to deal with 
viruses for again longer than Homo sapiens have even been on the planet. Um, and so they they developed some tricks. Um, you know, so we're starting to learn what what some of those evolutionary you know tricks are. So you know, for example, bats don't show signs of disease because they don't to some viruses make a pro-inflammatory cytokine response. And Aaron Jay, as part of his PhD thesis when he was in the University of Saskatchewan, found an element, uh, a negative um, regulatory element that's upstream of, um, of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Wow. And so, you know, and he was able to prove that by now if he takes that element and he puts it in front of a human, pro-inflammatory cytokine, virus infection does not make that pro-inflammatory cytokine. And if he takes that sequence away from that, now they make pro-inflammatory cytokines. Mm. So we're starting to learn what some of those really small, subtle differences are. So the pro-inflammatory cytokines are the ones that are causing this, um, uh, the presentation of the symptoms in uh, any of the animals that are infected. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, so a lot of, um, I mean, a, a lot of times, you know, people don't necessarily succumb to the, the virus per se. They succumb to it's the same thing with influenza, like the Spanish influenza. You hear about cytokine storm, right. you know, so it's an overactive immune response, and it's usually the pro-inflammatory cytokines, and then they have, you know, negative um, sequela if, if you have an overactive um, pro-inflammatory cytokine response. You, you want some inflammation, but some, right? It mm -hmm. has to be controlled, mm -hmm. so, and, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, bats don't show signs of disease um, because they don't have, you know, the, they, they're not making the pro-inflammatory cytokines. But they can still be diseased uh, then if they're not, if they don't have an inflammatory response, but still harbor the virus. Do they, do you classify them as having the disease or not? Well, it depends on what your definition of, so they don't have, they have the virus, they don't right. have the disease. Oh, that's true. I guess uh, it is the... Yep. <laughs> All right. So uh, we have very uh, little time left, and I think this will be our final question. Uh, so just to wrap up, uh, for the proteins that are encoded by SARS-CoV-2, how, uh, how many do we know the function of uh, out of those genes or proteins? Or, and how do we go about that? So I think because, you know, they're coronaviruses and, and, you know, between the family of coronaviruses, there's certainly, you know, a lot of um, similarity. So we know a lot about the core protein, polymerase, spike protein, you know, some of the ones that form, but then it's all of these accessory, accessory proteins. So, you know, not required for the absolute replication, not required for the physical structure, mm -hmm. Um, and we're just starting to learn, um, you know, what, what do some of these sort of accessory proteins, what do they do and how do they modify, you know, the immune response? So, so that's work that, that, I mean, our lab is doing that, other labs are doing that. Um, so we know some about the virus, but there's, it's, it's those little extra bits that, uh, that we, you really need to understand. Uh, well, actually, just uh, I know we said the final question, but if you can uh, just entertain me for one more, uh, wh what are some of the pressing questions that we still need to answer uh, about the novel coronavirus? So I think one of the most important ones is if you've been infected, and even if you have made an antibody response, are you protected? Hmm. I think that's one of the, the most important ones, because we've seen 
evidence that of people that have been positive and then they've been negative and then they're positive again. So we don't know is that just, um, again, in, in the negative test, is it because they flew under the radar and, and the test just came out negative? So, you know, did they have an infection all along and they just didn't clear it? But that's still over a long period of time. Or were they infected, they cleared the infection and then got a, you know, a, a mutated or different strain of the virus. So we still don't know. And, and this becomes important when we get the serology testing um, working just because you're seropositive. So it says, yes, you have been infected. You have antibodies. We don't know yet, are those antibodies protective? Right. And so, that is going to become, that to me, at least from the clinical, that's the most important question. Right. And that also has implications for vaccine development because if uh, our antibodies can't recognize it, then vaccines might not work for it. Absolutely. Or, or in a vaccine strategy, are you making the right, type of antibodies you know you're making an an immune response but is it the right type of right very interesting uh so thank you very much dr mossman for being on uh this show and it's been very uh nice and informative to have you on uh and i'm sure our uh, listeners also agree uh where can our audience get in touch or keep up with your research so we do have a lab website so if you just Google Mossman Lab, yeah. I think we have a um, link in the description too. Yeah, we do have um, a lab website. I mean, most most of my guys are, are are busy doing all this work that I don't know who's actually maintaining it right now. But um, but we have been trying to put all of our findings into the preprints as well. So if if you just look um, and do the Google or the PubMed searches, um, that's where the the latest um, information is going to be. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion informative. To kick off Season 5, the COVID Decoded series hosts sat down for a roundtable reflection on what we learned from the series and the pandemic at large. You can check out that episode and the other COVID Decoded streams wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Sciences in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link in our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.